stand together for the reading of God's Word. The sermon title is, The Lord Sends Helpers to His Church, verses of focus, uh, chapter 18 of Acts, verses 24 to 28. I'll be reading from verse 18 of chapter 18 through to verse 10 of chapter 19. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. So Paul still remained a good while, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing." And he sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So we've seen that Paul knew that it was time to leave Corinth and bring his second missionary journey to a close. We recall he took, we read today as well, he took Aquila and Priscilla to Ephesus, and then from there he went to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and then he rested in Antioch for a time, being refreshed, before beginning his third missionary journey, which starts in southern Galatia and proceeds there across Phrygia. 
which is where Paul is during this episode with Apollo, somewhere between Antioch and Ephesus there in Phrygia or even perhaps in Asia by now. We don't know exactly where he is. So Paul had entrusted the church in Achaia and Asia to the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we see the Lord can strengthen his people without Paul's presence. Paul knew, and we should too, brothers and sisters, that no one person is indispensable and that delegation as a leader is critical. Raising up those who can lead is critical. Romans 8.32 tells us this great and glorious promise. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I think we see the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrating uh, this great promise to his church today. Brothers and sisters, God will provide for his people in his due time, according to their needs. Remember Abraham, when he discovered this great truth on Mount Moriah? Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And we want to be able to walk in that same confidence that Abraham walked in. Walk in this great promise that God will provide for his church in due time all the needs of his church. The Lord sends helpers to his church in today's text. We'll look at Apollos, some background about him, his arrival at Ephesus, and how he begins preaching there. And then we'll see Aquila and Priscilla. They help Apollos. They're wise Christians. And then we'll see the Lord develops in Apollos this desire to go to Achaia, to sail across the sea there from Asia, back to where Athens and Corinth are. And we'll see the church at Ephesus sends a letter with Apollos, and we'll think and meditate upon that as well. And then we'll finally see by God's grace that Apollos is much help to the church at Achaia. And then as usual, some questions for us to know and to love and obey God more fully in our lives through these principles uh, applied in real time for us today. So verses 24 through 26a say, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So the first thing for us to see here is that Apollos is a Jew. So he grew up, we can say, in the synagogue educational system, and he had been taught and trained in the Old Testament scriptures since his earliest days. But he was born at Alexandria. So his experience as a Jew was much different than the Jews who were from Jerusalem or Judea. You see, he would have been far more exposed to and experienced with the paganism of ancient Rome than those Jews in Jerusalem. This combination of being Jewish and being more experienced living in a pagan world prepared him for his ministry in Ephesus and Achaia. So we begin to get a taste of God's providence and his timing. Apollo. Who's Apollo? One of the most important deities in the Greek pantheon. He's the sun god. He's also known as the god of healing or prophecy, poetry, and music. 
protector of crops and herds. So here we have this Jewish man named after this pagan god, or really named given by a pagan god. So even though his name origin is contrary to Jewish and Christian beliefs, Apollos held on to his name and still served the kingdom with that name. His Greek name would have helped him circulate amongst those outside the kingdom. Within the Roman Empire and the Greeks of that time, it would have helped him. Now, what about Alexandria? It's really an amazing city of learning and cultural advancement and educational attainments. Greek economic and commercial center, this is about Alexandria, uh, founded by Alexander the Great, established in 331 BC on the western edge of the Nile Delta. So this Alexandria is in Egypt. It was made the capital of Ptolemaic Egypt under Ptolemy. It remained the capital of Egypt until it was conquered by Arab forces in 641 AD and moved to the south at Fustat. Alexandria was at that time an important cultural and academic center of the Greek world and had a large Jewish population and later a large Christian population. It was in Egypt, in northern Egypt, northern Africa. What about Alexandria in Scripture? It's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, and we can learn a few things about it. Acts chapter 6, verse 9 speaks of the synagogue of the freedmen in Alexandria for former slaves. Now, included in this synagogue of freemen were men from Alexandria. Alexandria is mentioned again in passing later on in Acts, and we'll see that. Paul is ferried on an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, which was shipwrecked on the island of Malta later on in Acts. Three months later, another Alexandrian ship, which successfully docked at that island, would be the vessel on which Paul made his final journey to Rome. So in all four references, the biblical account speaks of a city with a well-educated Jewish population. Now, we also learn about him. He's not only Jewish, he's not only from Alexandria, which sets him apart and gives him unique, providentially unique preparation for this ministry. But we're told that he's an eloquent man, a learned man. So not just from Alexandria, which is a learned town, but the learned of the learned. Paul uses the short form of his name, which would have been Apollonius. Literally, the phrase, a learned man, refers to someone who is eloquent or well-educated. Alexandria was the Roman seat in Egypt. It was one of the larger cities of the empire and had a large Jewish population, occupying all of one of the five districts of the city and the majority of the second district as well. So it made up over 20% of the, at least the locational uh, geographic layout of Alexandria, the Jewish population there. So he was an eloquent man from Alexandria, well prepared, and he arrives in Ephesus. But there's something else about him that we're told that sets him apart even more. He is mighty in scriptures. Commentary says he had a great command of scripture language, and this was the eloquence he was remarkable for being mighty in the scriptures so the words are placed, having an excellent faculty of expounding scripture, which was to a public place in Ephesus, to trade with that talent for the honor of God and the good of many. He was not only ready in the scriptures, able to quote texts offhand and to repeat them and tell you where to find them, because many of the carnal Jews were so, who were therefore said to have the form of knowledge and the letter of the law, but he was mighty in the scriptures. He understood the sense and the meaning of them. He knew how to make use of them and to apply them 
how to reason out from the Scriptures and to reason strongly from the Scriptures. A convincing, commanding, confirming power went along with all his expositions and applications of the Scripture. So he not only knew the Word and where to go, but he knew the sense and the meaning of the texts and the interconnection of the texts. And he could reason out of them and apply them. And as we'll see, he was especially gifted at declaring the Messiah from the Old Covenant writings. And he certainly could have been one who who could have given that Emmaus Road um, teaching that Jesus gave uh, to his disciples. And he was also, we're told, instructed in the way of the Lord. So not only is he mighty in the scriptures of the Old Testament, but he's instructed in the way of the Lord. He understood the Messiah, Jesus Christ, not only by description in the Old Testament, in clarity and fullness and all of the glorious truths about the Messiah from the Old Covenant writings, but he knew that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and that Jesus had come out and, come and laid out the way of the Lord exactly as foretold in the Old Testament. Commentary says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. That is, he had some acquaintance with the doctrine of Christ, had obtained some general notions of the gospel and the principles of Christianity, that Jesus is the Christ and that prophet that should come into the world. The first notice of this would be readily embraced by one that was so mighty in the scripture as Apollos was, and therefore who understood the signs of the times. He was instructed, that is, catechized, That's what the word means, either by his parents or by ministers or perhaps both. He was taught something of Christ and the way of salvation in Christ. Those that are to teach others must first be themselves taught the word of the Lord, not only to talk of it, but to walk in it. It is not enough to have our tongues tuned to the word of the Lord, but we must have our feet directed into the way of the Lord. It appears this way of the Lord is directing him to Ephesus at this time. He is motivated by the way of the Lord and is indeed, you can tell in his mind, called to minister to the world at that time as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. We learn not only about his mind, but we see that he is fervent in spirit. He not only has a mind for God and a a great mind for the scripture and understands the way of the Lord, But he is boiling with heat, like boiling water in his zeal for God. He is consumed by the kingdom of God. He is consumed with the salvation of souls. He's consumed with truth coming forth like the dawn and driving out the darkness in his world that he sees. He's consumed with serving Christ. Now, it could mean that his own spirit was fervent, or it could mean that he had great zeal in the Holy Spirit, or perhaps both. Commentary says he was a lively, affectionate preacher. As he had a good head, so he had a good heart. He was fervent in spirit. He had in him a great deal of divine fire as well as divine light. Was burning as well as shining. He was full of zeal for the glory of God and the salvation of precious souls. This appeared both in his forwardness to preach when he was called to it by the rulers of the synagogue and in his fervency during his preaching. He preached as one in earnest and that had his heart in his work. What a happy 
composition was here. Many are fervent in spirit, but are weak in knowledge. In scripture, knowledge have far to seek for proper words and are full of improper ones. And on the other hand, many are eloquent enough and mighty in the scriptures and learned and judicious, but they have no life or fervency. Here was a complete man of God, thoroughly furnished for his work, both eloquent and fervent, full both of divine knowledge and divine affections. Which cuts, does it not? This cuts, does it not? May we be such as this. We are told that he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. Accurately meaning exactly, diligently. He was careful with his language. Careful to teach only what the scriptures say. Limiting himself to speak clearly and exactly what the word says. Jot by jot, tittle by tittle. And he focused upon the things of Christ, the Messiah, and his work and his kingdom. And he could expound these things with great clarity, starting in Genesis all the way to Malachi, showing how the Old Testament from beginning to end foretold Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, to deliver us from the fall and all the misery of the sin and death and hell that we deserve and to bring us into new life and resurrection power and joy and bliss in restored relationship with God. The Messiah... And he could speak of him clearly and accurately. And he was consumed with him in his mind and in his heart. Commentary says he took pains in his preaching. What he delivered was elaborate. And he did not offer that to God or to the synagogue that either cost nothing or cost him nothing. He first worked it out upon his own heart and then labored to impress it on those he preached to. He taught diligently. That's accurately, exactly. Everything he said was well weighed. He was an evangelical preacher too. Though he knew only the baptism of John, that was, yet that was the beginning of the gospel of Christ. And to that he kept close, for he taught the things of the Lord, of the Lord Christ, the things that tended to make way for him and to set him up, the things pertaining to the kingdom of the Messiah were the subjects he chose to insist upon. Not the things of the ceremonial law, though those would be pleasing to his Jewish auditors, not the things of the Gentile philosophy, though he could have discoursed very well on those things, but he spoke of the things of the Lord. He was focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his messianic ministry, his work in perfection, demonstrating that he is the Messiah, fulfilling all the foretold prophecies, his work upon the cross, bringing down the wrath of God upon himself for his people, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to God's right hand, and his eternal invincible reign. The Messiah, the things of the Lord, love him, serve him, repent and follow him. And yet, he knew only the baptism of John. So, his knowledge of God's kingdom had attained only to a certain level. Only to what we're told is called the baptism of John. And this means limited to John's preaching and practice. The idea there, baptism is a synecdoche, a head for all. So everything that John taught, all of his doctrines, all of his teachings, and his baptismal practice. He knew these things. But he needed to know the way of God even more accurately. He had not been inaccurate. He had just not known the fullness that he needed to know. Also, perhaps, Apollos knew not of the baptism of the Holy Spirit accomplished by Christ at Pentecost. 
and the attendant comfort and power of such unique divine action upon his entire being. And we'll see that as we go forward in Acts 19. There's a connection and we'll learn more about the distinction between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus Christ. And we look at the first part of uh, chapter 19, which we read this morning. Commentary says, This Apollos was instructed in the gospel of Christ as far as John's ministry would carry him and no further. He knew the preparing of the way of the Lord by that voice crying in the wilderness rather than the way of the Lord itself. He cannot but think he had heard of Christ's death. We cannot but think that he had heard of Christ's death and resurrection, but he was not led into the mystery of them, had not had opportunity of conversing with any of the apostles since the pouring out of the Spirit, or he had himself been baptized only with the baptism of John, but was not baptized with the Holy Ghost as the disciples were at the day of Pentecost. And this makes the most sense to me in many commentaries because of what Luke puts immediately after this in chapter 19. is that He needed to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus' baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes with it. Which we see in that chapter 19. The speaking in tongues and the prophesying and the great power and miraculous work that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. So what did he do? This man, providentially prepared, not, not yet fully embracing the fullness of the gospel of the kingdom at this time, and yet prepared in many ways to be a servant. Comfortable amongst the Gentiles, deeply knowledgeable and mighty in Scripture, knowing the way of the Lord accurately, but not yet fully. Strong in mind, fiery in heart, and eloquent of speech. Think of it, he arrives at just the right moment. He brings forth the word of God to the Jews and he links up with Aquila and Priscilla. We see the Lord's loving hand here in this man's life. The Lord Jesus Christ helps his churches. Commentary says he was a courageous preacher. He spoke boldly in the synagogue as one who having put confidence in God did not fear the face of man. He spoke as one that knew the truth of what he said and had no doubt of it and that knew the worth of what he said and was not afraid to suffer for it. And he went in the synagogue where the Jews not only were present but had power. And there he preached the things of God which he knew they were prejudiced against. We saw that same courage in John, did we not? And he demonstrates the courage of John. Even though it's apparent he had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit to the fullness of the power available to him. Well, so what happens next? He gets help. He gets help from Aquila and Priscilla. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So first let's think about Aquila and Priscilla in this section here. They heard him, we're told. So these faithful Christians, this faithful Christian couple, man and wife, uh, likely uh, wealthy merchants able to travel about. Uh, they, we know, hosted uh, churches in their home in various cities. And they are left in Ephesus by Paul. Remember, he, Paul brought them with him, these tent makers, these dear friends who had comforted him upon his arrival there in Corinth before Timothy and Silas were back with him there. They're here in Ephesus, and what are they doing? They're working for the kingdom. They're present in the synagogue for the sake of Christ. Now, it appears as though that uh, Aquila is not preaching. It's as if he knows where his giftedness lies. But they link up with Apollos, and they note his giftedness. They see that the Lord is raising up this man for a special work. And they listen to his teaching. Listen, 
You see what they did? They listened closely to his teaching. And they see his great knowledge. They see his fiery heart for the Lord. And they say, ah, here's a man of God. And yet they see the need for further instruction in his life. So there's a point here we can learn from, and that is the wise and mature always working within the limitations of their own giftedness according to the wisdom that God gives to them, and yet always on the lookout for discipleship opportunities. Aquila and Priscilla heard him preach in the synagogue, and though in knowledge he was much inferior to them, yet having excellent gifts for public service, they encouraged his ministry by a diligent and constant attendance upon it. Thus, young ministers that are hopeful should be countenanced by grown Christians, for it becomes them to fulfill all righteousness. You know, the old fuddy-duddies can really pour cold water on things, can't we? No, 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 brothers and sisters. Be wiser than that. Fan the flames. Fan the flames. Throw on more fuel. Perfect the fire. Perfect the heat. I want us to see Aquila and Priscilla in their wisdom lovingly helping this minister who's new to this town. They did not look down upon him. They did not take occasion from what they observed of his deficiency, either to despise him themselves or to disparage him to others. They didn't call him a young, raw preacher, not fit to come into a pulpit, but they considered the disadvantages he had labored under as knowing only the baptism of John and having themselves got great knowledge in the truths of the gospel by their long, intimate conversation with Paul, they communicated what they knew to him and gave him a clear, distinct, and methodical account of those things which before he had but confused notions of. Isn't that beautiful? They understood his deficiency. And they, they loved what God was doing in his life. And there wasn't a, it, does, it appears there's not a hint of pride in what's going on here in their lives. They're wise about how they go about this as well. They did not publicly correct him. You see, they took him aside. Isn't that beautiful? Priscilla and Aquila must teach him, but they do so sensitively in private. You know, as we study through relational wisdom together over these next months, one of the things we're going to be coming back to over and over again is being aware of other people being aware of other people. And that other awareness is really compassion. It comes down to having a compassionate heart. And it flows forth from self-awareness, which really comes down to humility and brokenness and an awareness that we have nothing that we have not received from God himself. So we see this beauty, don't we? In Priscilla and Aquila and how they take him aside in private. They're aware of him. They want to have compassion towards him. They see that he needs to learn more. And they engage with him in faithful, loving, sacrificial service to him. Even risky service, because they don't know for sure whether he's going to respond well, do they? And we'll see this served as a test. Because this church came to trust this man enough to send a letter with him. For him to receive this instruction shows his humility, which we'll get to. So what did they teach him? They taught him the way of God more accurately. Well, Aquila and Priscilla, they're devoted to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They want it for his glory, and they desire to help Apollos grow up into this complete, full way of God, which is what we should all want for one another, seeking the fullness of God's kingdom in their lives and teaching, and they want this for Apollos. They're seeking it for themselves, and they want it for Apollos. They want to pass on to Apollos the things that they've likely learned from Paul. 
They've been helped by Paul, and they want to help Apollos. And guess what? Apollos is going to go back to Corinth, <laughs> where they were, and, and, and help them there. So let's take a moment to consider Apollos' humility. This is really important, and we'll be studying Andrew Murray's book this year, Humility, and um, may God grant us the humility of Christ. Apollos is teachable. Something's been done in this man's life by God. You can't do this for yourself. Something's been done in this man's life by God to prepare him. And perhaps it's why he's so mighty in Scripture. Already is because he had been teachable. He had been open to all the greater instruction he had received before. Humility doesn't pop up overnight. So not only is mind full and sharp and providing light and his, and his heart is on, on fire for Christ, providing warmth to those around him, but also his advancement in the kingdom has not brought along pride and self-focus. So often as we advance in the ways of the kingdom, our pride, I think Lewis called it the, the dark underbelly of every virtue, is our pride. May God strip this from our souls. You see, there's a final test we see here for Apollos that surely brings upon him the church's approval as a truly godly man, godly man, a man worthy of their commendation, a man worthy to be sent back to Corinth to help them and not mislead them, to help them, not harm them. See an instance of great humility here in Apollos, according to the commentary. He was a very bright young man of great parts and learning, newly come from the university, a popular preacher, and one mightily cried up and followed, and yet, finding that Aquila and Priscilla were judicious, serious Christians that could speak intelligently and experimentally of the things of God, and experimentally likely means experientially there. Though they were but mechanics, poor tent makers, he was glad to receive instructions from them, to be shown by them his defects and his mistakes, and to have his mistakes rectified by them, and his deficiencies made up through their help. Young scholars may gain a great deal by converse with old Christians, as young students in the law may by old practitioners. Apollos, though he was instructed in the way of the Lord, did not rest in the knowledge he had attained, nor thought he understood Christianity as well as any other man, which proud, conceited young men are apt to do. As an aside, in today's world, we often call this the cage stage. Think you know everything, right? Born again. Learn some new doctrine. Think you know all of Scripture because you know one page of Scripture. Back to the commentary. But was willing to have it expounded to him more perfectly. Those that know much should covet to know more. And what they know to know it better. Pressing forward towards perfection. This is what we do together, brothers and sisters. This is our life of sanctification together. And this kind of humble submission to one another is essential to this joyful growth and sanctification together. Now we also want to see Priscilla, this godly woman, as an example of humility as well. Here's an instance of a good woman, though not permitted to speak in the church or in the synagogue, yet doing good with the knowledge God had given her in private converse. Paul will have the aged women to be teachers of good things. So we, we're told that they both provide this instruction. They both are in this conversation that they take him aside to, to, to go through. And I think it further demonstrates Apollo's humility to receive instruction 
from this woman. And so we all need to learn from this. Uh, the women learn the good and proper way to be a help to a man. And men learn how to submit themselves to the teaching of any good Christian in their lives, man or woman. We see that in Ephesians, don't we? We are to submit ourselves one to another. This is, how, this is what it looks like practically when we do this. So through all of this, something happens in Apollos. Now, he was certainly would have heard from Priscilla and Aquila. He would have become aware of the broader ministry of Paul by this time and likely would have heard concerns expressed from Aquila and Priscilla about Corinth and what was going on there. Remember, that's a troubled church. We looked at Corinth before. And so Apollos gets it in his mind. He, to text, simply says, and when he desired to cross to Achaia. So God put something in him. The Lord sends help to his church. It says Achaia. We know he went to Corinth. We don't know whether he went to Athens or not. But he goes to Achaia. Commentary says, He himself inclined to go. Having heard of the state of the churches there, he had a mind to try what good he could do among them. Though there were those there who were eminent for spiritual gifts, yet Apollos thought there might be some work for him, and God disposed his mind that way. And so he goes. God puts this in his heart. God prepares this man through all these years, brings him to Ephesus, gives him knowledge of what's needed in Achaia, gives him further training, prepares him even more, and he arrives in Corinth to be a help. And we see from the letters that Paul wrote to Corinth that he was a great help. Now, that uh, church was filled up with some divisive people, and they tried to set Paul and Apollos over and against one another, and they tried to point to eloquence like Apollos had as being superior to the lack of eloquence in Paul's life, but they failed. Ultimately, we see at the end of 2 Corinthians that they're in the minority. And the work of Paul and Apollos, Paul who planted, Apollos who water, watered, brought fruit. And this should bring us great encouragement to see that Jesus Christ helps his church. So what happens next is worth pausing. It's a statement in passing, but, you know, in today's world, the dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church is ignored. Um, the dignity of the church and the role of the institution of the church in this world is largely ignored in today's world. The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. So we see here that Apollos is now proved enough by the church at Ephesus because of his character, because of his gifts, and his proven devotion to Christ and his kingdom. So they give him this letter to send him. So not only does he have this internal call at this point in time, now we know he's got the external call. The church gives their approbation to this man's ministry. And if you will, sends him as an evangelist. As a man to preach in their midst. Faithful with the word of God. A proven character. But we also see more of Apollos. You know, he's not down at the abortion mill preaching by himself and not caring whether there's a church that has blessed his ministry. As so many do in today's world. He goes, but he goes with the blessing of the church. He again demonstrates his humility by submitting himself to the evaluation of the church at Ephesus. Brothers and sisters, this is an example of the dignity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on display for which we should all duly, duly take note 
that this principle would guide our thinking in all the days of our lives. Commentary says they gave him a testimonial or letters of recommendation exhorting the disciples in Achaia to entertain him and employ him. In this way, among others, the communion of churches is kept up by the recommending of members and ministers to each other when ministers, as Apollos here, are disposed to remove. Though those at Ephesus had a great loss of his labors, they did not grudge those in Achaia the benefit of them, but on the contrary, used their interest in them to introduce him. For the churches of Christ, though they are many, yet they are one. And we'll be praying for Crown and Covenant Church and Pastor Peter Allison in Conroe, Texas today. And we'll be praying for Heritage Church in Centerville, Tennessee and Pastor, Pastors Bradshaw and Lovett and Evans today. And thinking of our brothers and sisters who are in legal jeopardy and praying for them today. It certainly shows us the unity of God's church throughout the whole world. So what happens next? Well, it's no surprise, is it, that he is much help to this church when he gets there. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So this resistance, this ugly resistance from the Jews was persisting. Remember, they had taken Paul before Gallio, and they tried to get the ruling against him, and Gallio had reversed it and driven them from the judgment seat, and they were in trouble. Well, they were still keeping it up. They were still resisting the gospel. So he's much help to them there in that need. Lord Jesus Christ sends helpers for his church. He knows their need. And he was a helper in many ways, surely. It uh, certainly wouldn't have been just in his preaching, but you can tell that's the pointy tip of the spear that's needed the most right there in Corinth at that time. You know, because they could slowly but surely kind of come against each of the messianic teachings from the Old Testament and dull them and blunt them down if there's not a sharp, strong, fiery, yet warm and loving and humble preacher there to defend against it. So his giftedness excelled in the Word of God in preaching, especially in refuting the Jews. And he did vigorously and publicly do this, using the Scriptures, showing them that Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, that one unique man is the foretold Messiah of the Old Testament. Commentary says the case was so plain and the arguments were so strong on Christ's side that it was an easy matter to baffle all that the Jews could say against it. Though they were so fierce, yet their cause was so weak that he made nothing of their opposition. Now that which he aimed to convince them of was that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah promised to the fathers who should come, and they were to look for none other. If the Jews were but convinced of this, that Jesus is Christ, even their own law would teach them to, bear, to hear him. Note this, the business of ministers is to preach Christ, which preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. The way that Apollos took to convince them was by the scriptures. Thence he fetched his arguments, and so should we. For the Jews owned the scriptures to be of divine authority, and it was easy for him who was mighty in the scriptures, for, from them, those scriptures, to show that Jesus is the Christ. This is what Apollos did, as the Lord Jesus Christ in his love for his church sent him there to help Corinth to help the church at Achaia at that time and to help the church at Ephesus as well. Praise be to God.
So a few questions for us to consider these things in our lives today. Brothers and sisters, the providence, the timing of God is perfect in every detail. Do you rejoice in God's providential work in your life? Do you rejoice in every aspect of the timing of His providence in your life? Or do you fret and complain? Do you fret and complain? You know, we're going to look at this closely as we go through Jeremiah Burroughs' uh, book this year regarding that rare jewel of the Christian life called contentment. Do you embrace each day as you awaken, aware of God's providential preparation in your life up until that moment, knowing that He's got plans for you in your life to minister and to serve Him in your days to come? Or do you walk in ignorance, unaware of the great and glorious value of your own life and the ministry that He will work in and through you as you love and serve Him? Next, Christ loves His church. Christ loves Cornerstone. Christ loves the CPC. Christ loves His church in this world right now no less than he did the church in Achaia or Macedonia or in Asia or in Judea at that time or in Phrygia at that time Jesus Christ loves his church so let me ask you do you rest in the Lord's care and provision for his church as we consider our deficiencies and our weaknesses here and whatever period of time the Lord may see fit for us to dwell in the midst of those deficiencies or even afflictions. Do you dwell there in peace, trusting in Christ's care for you and His church? Or do you fret and complain? And this will even show up in the way we pray. Do we pray with gratitude for our deficiencies when we ask for the Lord's help? Amen. Do we pray with, with thankfulness to the Lord for our afflictions? Even as we seek Him for relief. So brothers and sisters, Christ loves His church. Christ loves this church. And do you rest in His care and provision? Because He sends help to His church. Brothers and sisters, next Christ knows the needs of His church. We see Jesus knew the needs of the church Corinth and Achaia and Ephesus in Asia and he he sent he sent help he started that help when this man was conceived in who knows where born in who knows where but brought up in Alexandria so many years before he began the help for that church as he does for his church throughout time Weaving all of His providences for the good of His people and the glory of His name in this earth without exception. So the Jews needed refuting and God sent them an eloquent man in scriptures to do this. Out of nowhere. Like I, there's nothing in here where the people of Corinth like sent out a, a call. Like you know on the internet, pastoral call needed in Achaia. God knew and God sent help. What are our needs here? Do we look to the Lord and trust Him to meet our needs? And of course, you can extend this to your personal life, your marriage, your children. Uh, it goes everywhere. 
Do you trust Him and walk in peace knowing that great unassailable comfort of the inner space of your soul occupied only by your Savior who will never let you go? Do you trust that the Lord will care for us? Next, are you mighty in the Scriptures? Do you teach the way of the Lord accurately? That's a, that's a tall question, isn't it? We want to be these types of individuals, don't we? To be able to say thus and such from the Scriptures makes this point, and so does this Scripture, and to have it in our minds. We want to be these types of people, but we're not. Not to the extent that we want to be. And you know what? I'm sure that even the greatest man who ever lived would say the same thing at his deathbed. There's more to learn. Christ alone. Christ alone was the one who needed no more perfection. So, what's occurring in your life daily to be mighty in the Word? Is your mind immersed in God's Word? Are you, is your life drenched in the Scriptures from start to finish? What's going on in your family regarding God's Word? What's going on in your own life regarding God's Word? Are you reading God's Word regularly? Are you making your way through the totality of Scripture on a regular enough basis to remember the last time you read it? Are you memorizing Scripture? Are you meditating upon Scripture? Are you thinking through your life through the grid of Scripture? Are you able to speak from Scripture, reason from Scripture, comfort with Scripture, identify your own sin with Scripture, be broken under Scripture? Are you mighty in the Scriptures? And what are you doing about it? Next, are you humble like Apollos? Ready to be helped along in a better understanding of God's Word and God's ways by anyone that He may bring into your life? A manual laborer. The wife of a manual laborer. Are you prepared to submit yourself to other Christians who bring the Word of God to you? And demonstrate the humility of God as you do so. If you go to God's Word regularly without humility, you will be puffed up and you will drive people away from you. If you go to God's Word without humility and learn it like you're learning how to change the oil or how to bake a cake, you will drive people away from you. So humility starts with the being mighty in Scriptures upon your own soul, your own mind. Are you humble or are you proud? Are you self-controlled or are you lazy and self-indulgent? Do you remember God or do you forget Him and walk in unfaithfulness? Fickle. Do you remember others thinking of them, being compassionate towards them and serving them sacrificially? Next, what compels you daily? What, what, what's the fire inside of you? Is it a desire to serve and love God and His people? To bring Him glory through your life? Is that what gets you out of bed? 
Or is it some other goal? Self-wrought, self-sought, self-taught, not relying upon God, not looking to Him. We see that Apollos was driven by the desire to bring glory to God. Aquila and Priscilla, the same. Paul, the same. We've talked about it before. It's the love of Christ that must compel us. So are you humble like Aquila and Priscilla, helping others grow without embarrassing or discouraging them? Are you an encourager? You know, when we're helping one another grow, sometimes we can do it in ways that make the plant wilt instead of spring forth. Our efforts to water and bring light can be more like a trampoline. Nobody here wants to do that to one another. I know we don't want to do that. None of us want to do that. But you know, you can end up doing that and not even realize it. You can be that kind of person because of your own background to where, hey, the way I'm behaving now, if I did this in my family of origin, they, they would know, they would get it. No. No. So are you a discourager when you're helping people to grow? Or are you an encourager like Aquila and Priscilla were? Were they, they were so sensitive to the needs that they saw in this man and they took him aside and they were humble with him and they, they helped him grow in ways that encouraged him and made him feel closer to God, more valuable to God, more useful in God's hand. Encouraged them, strengthened them, edified them, built them up. So when the conversation was over, they went out saying, Yes. Thank you for that help. Thank you for growing me. Thank you for that correction. May God bless us to be living stones fitted together by our great cornerstone, the architect and builder in ways that He is constantly smoothing out the rough edges and bringing us together in perfection for His glory. May we not bring one another down as we seek to help each other. Amen? Amen. Next, you see how Paul's love and work with Priscilla and Aquila flowed to Apollos and to the church at Ephesus and Achaia? This should really encourage you. I mean, there's all these stories we could tell, right? Of this person doing a kind act and this person doing a kind act because of it, because of it, because of it, and the whole string of it. And next thing you know, the person who did the first kind act is the recipient of the, the, the domino effect of kind acts. False systems call it karma, dharma, whatever you want to call it. But what we see here is that the blessings that we give, we never know how far they're going to flow. The blessings we give, they never, we never know how far they're going to flow. May that encourage us, encourage us. Paul probably had no idea what was going to happen there with Apollos. Think about how encouraged he would have been. So do you value the discipleship opportunities in your life? Moms, when you give a cup of cold water to your little ones, you never know how far that blessing will flow. Not only like we see in today's text in the time in which we live, but in the generations to come. Down the halls of history until the return of our Savior. There would be at least one story that could be told of your kindness that would make a difference throughout the generations to come. That would point to Christ 
and, and cause eyes to be lifted up to him? Or do you pridefully perhaps see yourself as indispensable, unwilling to delegate, unwilling to help others, or undervaluing the little acts of kindness that you get to do each day? Next, do you understand the importance of having a good reputation with God's people, with God's church? So, children, young adults, listen to me, please. As you grow up, Wherever you live, will you understand the importance of having a good reputation with God's church, with God's people? Will you make sure that you are a member in good standing, having taking, taken covenant vows with a faithful, lawfully established local assembly all the days of your life and bring this great and critical truth into the lives of your children as well? Or will you join in with the culture and despise the dignity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and not make yourself a member of his glorious bride in such a public, overt fashion? Another way we can put this out there is would your church be able to write a, quote, without reservation commendation letter for you? Pastor calls me up. Hey, we've got this person uh, transferring over here. Pastor Clark, I want to know, can you send them over with, a, with membership? I said, yes, they're members in good standing here. Absolutely are members in good standing here. Praise be to God. Brothers and sisters, what I'm describing to you is critical for the future victory of the gospel in the earth and the establishment of the coming glory of the Prince of Peace in the earth. We do not see the reestablishment of the dignity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this earth. We will continue to see the fragmentation of culture and the destruction of reason and righteousness in the public square. They understood it then. May we understand it once again. Next. Are you able to both give and receive help with a humble and compassionate heart? We've talked about giving help. But can you also receive help? Next. Do you see in your life both a mind and a heart for God? The light and the heat? The blazing and the shining like we heard uh, in the commentary? You know, do you see in your life as you learn more from His Word and your mind is instructed in His ways that there are sparks in your soul that your heart is set ablaze over and over again in love and affection and gratitude towards God. This is why we're praying and seeking the Lord this year as our theme, that He would enlarge our hearts, that we might run in the way of His commandments. Those who are grateful, those who are humble, and those who are obedient to Him out of gratitude for what He has done for us. May this be so. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, once again, Lord, we seek You to enlarge our hearts that we may run in the way of Your commandments. That from heaven You would pour out by Your hand Your Holy Spirit in us and through us. That You would expand our knowledge and experience of Your presence. That You would increase the accuracy of our speech. 
making us mightier in your word, that you would grow us up in love and affection for you and for others, that you would increase our humility and our gratitude. Oh, bless us, Father, to rest in you, to trust in you, to know that you, Lord Jesus Christ, you do indeed every day send help from heaven to your church. Oh, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.